Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The You've had your first lesson in learning the blues. Addition, as the Bengals' playoff chances take a hit with a gut-wrenching overtime loss to the San Francisco 49ers. Coming up, you'll hear radio replays, post-game comments from players and coaches, and analysis from my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. Then, in this week's Fun Facts segment, you'll learn that Frank Pollock is not only a great offensive line coach, but a sensational storyteller. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play next-level fantasy football game. Download it now from the App Store and Google Play. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. It's the greatest thing since... A.D. Bryant. The current season of Saturday Night Live isn't doing much for me, but the one cast member who consistently makes me laugh is A.D. Bryant. Whether it's her physical comedy, intentionally weird pronunciations, or 100% commitment to the musical shorts, like the one about re-gifting a Christmas candle, A.D. Bryant elevates every sketch she's in. So, here's to my SNL MVP. A.D. Bryant, with a thumbs up to Kate McKinnon and Keenan Thompson, too. Now, let's get to Sunday's game. After the two teams traded punts on their opening series, the Bengals forced the 49ers to punt again the second time they got the ball. Wisnowski lets it rip. Phillips moving forward, struggles to catch it, loses the ball. He muffed it. There's a wrestling match for the ball, and the 49ers recover at the Cincinnati 23. Jeez. So the 49ers took over on the cusp of the red zone, and while the Bengals' defense did not give up a first down, Robbie Gold kicked a short field goal to give San Fran a 3-0 lead. Phillips was briefly injured when he muffed the punt, and Stanley Morgan took over as the Bengals' kick returner. He promptly muffed the ensuing kickoff before recovering and getting tackled at the 14. Cincinnati overcame that and drove to the San Francisco 19 before settling for a field goal in the red zone that tied the game at three at the end of the first quarter. The Bengals' D only gave up two first downs in the first quarter, but Kyle Shanahan is too good of a play designer, and the 49ers have too many good players to shut them down all day. Second down and eight, the Bengals 27. Garoppolo fakes a handoff. No, he did give it to Debo Samuel, sprinting to the right, turns the corner, down the sideline, into the end zone. Touchdown, San Francisco. Debo Samuel is listed as a wide receiver, but he frequently lines up at running back, and that 27-yard run gave the Niners a 10-3 lead. The Bengals cut the margin to four when they drove into the red zone again before settling for a short field goal with 142 left in the half and it looked like Cincinnati might score again when the defense forced a quick three and out. 107 left in the half, the 49ers have to punt. Way up into the air, Phillips calls for a fair catch and loses the ball. It's recovered by San Francisco at the Cincinnati 30-yard line. Second muff punt of the game for Darius Phillips. Phillips did not return another kick or punt for the rest of the game. Here's Mike Hilton. In my opinion, that's one of the hardest jobs is to be a punt returner. You know, you got guys screaming down on you, and you just got to, number one, catch the ball. And 
you know, he, he didn't do it, but we're not losing confidence in him. We, we know if he get the ball in his hands in space, you know, he's able to make plays for us. Those were the first two fumbles that Darius Phillips has lost this year. The Bengals' defense has been phenomenal this year after turnovers, only allowing two touchdowns the first 17 times they took the field after a turnover. And it looked like they were going to come through again when they forced an incomplete pass on third and seven that would have forced a field goal try. But on the play, Von Bell was called for taunting to give the 49ers a first down. Was it a good call? Here's Zach Taylor. I didn't personally see it, um, but I, I, it sounds like it was, it was probably what's been called historically this season with taunting. Um, but uh, I, I got to be careful because I haven't seen it yet, but... Some of the feedback was that, that that's kind of what's been called. It was the second time this year that Bell has been called for taunting, and this time it cost the Bengals four points. Garoppolo catches the shotgun snap. He's back to throw. Has time. Looks around. Floats it down toward the two. Caught by Kittle. Extends the Touchdown. ball to the pylon. Touchdown, San Francisco. Man, talk about mistakes. Fumbles, penalties, taunting penalties. All it is is self-destruction. It made the halftime score 17-6 San Francisco. Here's Sam Hubbard. Um, you can't beat yourself. I think that really is what comes down to it. The good teams, they don't beat themselves. They don't make those mistakes. And we want to be a good team. You know, we do a lot of good things. There's bright moments. But when it comes down to it, there's situations where we can't make the mistakes we've been making the last two weeks to win games. As for tight end George Kittle, he destroyed the Bengals all day, finishing with 13 catches, for 151 yards. We tried everything. Um, he, he's one of the, the best tight ends. I, we've known that for a long time. And, um, you know, he, he had similar production last week. I think he almost had 200 yards receiving. And it's it's not like he surprises people. Um, when a guy is, is that explosive and that big, that good of hands, that catch radius, he, he makes a lot of plays. And, and I promise you, we tried like hell to take him away. And um, he just he finds a way to make those plays. The deficit got bigger in the third quarter. The Bengals opened the second half with three straight running plays and had to punt on fourth and one. The 49ers answered with a field goal to take a 20-6 lead. The Bengals responded with a nice drive, marching to the 19, but a sack knocked them out of the red zone and forced them to call on kicker Evan McPherson. Harris's snap. Huber puts it down. The kick has plenty of distance, nope. and it is Pulled wide it. left. Pulled it left. The misery extended for the Bengals today as they are having a wide variety of failures in every aspect of the game. To that point, there had been three muffs in the kicking game, a taunting penalty on defense that turned a field goal try into a touchdown, and three trips into the red zone on offense without scoring a touchdown. It seemed highly unlikely that the Bengals would rally from 14 down in the fourth quarter. But then again, they have Joe Burrow, and he was close to perfect for the rest of the game. Fourth down and five in the red zone. The Bengals line up to go for it, trailing 20 to six. At the 17 of San Francisco, three receivers left, one right. Burrow has the ball, he's back to throw. Scrambling left, turns back toward the right, running to the right, looking downfield, throws into the end zone. Oh, Chase baby! Makes the catch Woo! on the back line of Unreal. the end zone. Touchdown, <laughs> Bengals! Jamar Chase hauls it in, and the Bengals are alive with 9.20 to go. It was hard to tell on TV just how remarkable that play was as Burrow threw the ball in the opposite direction of where Chase was running in the back of the end zone. When I threw it, he was still running left. Um, 
and he did a great job of, you know, we were just on the same page. I knew exactly what, what he was seeing, and I, he knew exactly what I was seeing, and I, he was running left, and I threw it right, and he put his foot in the ground and went and got it. I don't really know why he did that, but he was just saying, you know, he was throwing the ball away from the defender because the defender got to turn his hips which way. I was like, man, that's really kind of smart. I didn't, you know what I'm saying? You fooled me out there. So uh, that was actually a good play by him. That made it 20-13, to 13, and the Bengals' defense got two straight stops to give Burrow a chance. The first time they got him the ball, the Bengals had to punt. But the second time, Cincinnati started at its own 13 with 2.40 to go and drove down the field to tie the game. 125 on the clock. A two-by-two two formation. Burrow back to throw. Looking. Firing deep got for him. Chase in the end zone. Oh, He's yeah. got it! Yeah. Touchdown! Joe Burrow and the Bengals as he delivers to numero uno, Jamar Chase. Man. 119 on the clock as he beat Thomas. And now the Bengals will line up for the extra point with a chance to tie it with 119 to go. You couldn't put that ball in a better spot. I mean, Chase ran a great route, and Joe Burrow threw the ball over the outside shoulder. The only guy that could make a play on that football was Jamar Chase. Unbelievable catch, better throw. Here's Burrow on the Bengals' comeback. You know, we've kind of been a second-half team the whole the whole season. Um, we figure out what, what we're seeing, and then we go and attack it. You know, it's a, it's a four-quarter game. You're going to have ups and downs throughout the game, whether it's in the first half or the second half. And you just got to finish strong and try to find wins. The only negative about the touchdown was that it left enough time on the clock for the 49ers to answer. And a 19-yard pass from Garoppolo to Kittle on third and 10 gave 17-year veteran Robbie Gold a chance to end it on the final play. 47 yards away from the left hash to win it for San Francisco. The kick is on its way. It's a line drive kick. It is no, no good. No. He missed it. Ooh. And we're headed to overtime. Oh. Tied at 20. <laughs> The Bengals won the toss and got the ball, meaning they could win the game by scoring a touchdown. Burrow hit T. Higgins for 26 yards. After a run by Joe Mixon got stopped for no gain, Burrow hit C.J. Uzama for a gain of 23. It was first and 10 at the San Francisco 26. In the fourth quarter in overtime, Burrow went 11 for 15 for 210 yards, two touchdowns and no picks for a passer rating of 154.8. But rather than letting Burrow go for the jugular, the Bengals handed it to Mixon for a gain of four, then handed it to Joe again for a gain of three. On third and three, Burrow dropped back to throw and got sacked. Joe was asked about the play calling on the final drive. Whatever play call is, is called, we're going to execute to the best of our ability. Uh, and we, we had a good drive there. We just weren't able to, to close it out. Joe wasn't about to publicly second-guess the coaches, but Zach Taylor second-guessed himself when he was asked the following question by my former colleague at Fox 19, Joe Daneman. Is there ever a thought as a play caller when the quarterback's hot to stick with a hot hand and ride him? Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. You know, it's, 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 that, that's one that'll keep you up at night, you know, of, of we got a quarterback that can win us a lot of games. And, uh, you know, there's maybe one more pass instead of a run there. Um, sure, if we hit that run, I feel great about it, but we didn't. And so then you go back to hindsight, and uh, I'm sure I'll feel a lot of that tonight. Evan McPherson kicked a 41-yard field goal to give the Bengals their first lead all day, 23-20. to 20. But that meant the 49ers would get a chance to either tie it 
or win it. From the 12-yard line, Garoppolo fakes a handoff, short throw, caught by Ayuk, 10, 5, dives to the pylon, he goes out of bounds first. Wow. He's out of bounds at the 2, where it'll be first and goal. After review, it is a touchdown, the game is over. Wow. A bitterly disappointing defeat for the Cincinnati Bengals. They rally from 14 down in the fourth quarter, take the lead in overtime, and cannot stop the San Francisco 49ers from driving 75 yards for a game-winning touchdown. The final score, San Francisco 26, Cincinnati 23. Not as painful as Montana to Taylor, but still painful. Here are Sam Hubbard and Mike Hilton. A drive at the end, you know, you got to stop them there, and uh, we didn't. So um, I'm proud of, you know, I love the guys on my team that we went out there and battled. Nobody, I think I don't even know what we were down at one point, but we just kept sticking together, getting stops, climbing back into it. Nobody, you know, pointing fingers, but uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, uh, tough to win in this league. These last two weeks, we we've kind of done dug ourselves in some deep holes that we weren't able to get out of. Um, and, you know, it's two losses that we feel like we, we play to our standard. We, we, we should win those games. And we know as a team we, we, we got to start faster and we got to finish. Finish like we've been finishing, but that, that first half we just got to come out with more urgency and, and more fight. Had the Bengals won, they would have moved into a tie for first in the AFC North with the Ravens, who not only lost in Cleveland on Sunday, but saw Lamar Jackson taken off the field on a cart with an ankle injury. Baltimore has dropped two straight and the Bengals couldn't take advantage of the opportunity. Here's Burrow. You know, when the one of the teams that you're fighting for, for the division with loses, you you got to take advantage of that. And we haven't been able to the last two weeks, so, you know, like you said, missed opportunities. The Bengals would no longer be a wildcard team if the season ended today. They've fallen to ninth on the AFC totem pole, and seven teams get in. Cincinnati's final four games are at Denver, home against Baltimore, home against Kansas City, and on the road in Cleveland. All four teams have winning records. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play fantasy football game. Ultimate Bengals will be awarding a weekly winner during the course of the season with tickets, autographed merchandise, and money-can't-buy experiences all up for grabs. Find Ultimate Bengals in the App Store and Google Play. Now, time for post-game analysis with my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. Lap, this is a second-guessers field day. As the Bengals drove in overtime down to the 26-yard line, they had it first and 10 and called two straight running plays that didn't work very well. Eventually, Joe Burrow got sacked, and the Bengals kicked a field goal that did not turn out to be the game-winning points. Zach Taylor is pretty candid. When asked about it after the game, he said, yeah, I kind of agree with you. I'm probably going to have a hard time getting to sleep tonight. Yeah, I think he is. Um, you know, that 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 ended up getting a little bit curious, particularly the way that they were they were moving uh, the ball through the air in big chunks. Not just that uh, drive in overtime, but the drives in the fourth quarter. I mean, Joe Burrow was unbelievable in the fourth quarter. In fact, he was unbelievable for the game. But I think uh, the game came down to two things: turnovers. The Bengals went minus two in the kicking game fumbles of all things. Man, that's a killer in red zone. I mean, they, these were the number one and number three offenses in the NFL in touchdown, red zone touchdown percentage efficiency. And uh, the 49ers went two for four, scored two touchdowns. The Bengals go one for five in the red zone, only 20% conversion as opposed to the 50%. And in a game that you lose in overtime, 
in my mind, that's a massive uh, difference right there. George Kittle's awesome. He's had as many as 15 catches in a game. He's had more than 200 yards in a game. He had more than 180 last week against Seattle. He had 13 catches for 151 today. Why can't a team stop George Kittle? It's remarkable, you know, and uh, and you look at it. I mean, they've got good wide receivers, but it's not like they have, you know, Jerry Rice and John Taylor out there, you know. Uh, Kittle, he just he, – he seems to he, – he's so savvy. He's so smart. He's so strong. He's so physical. He's just uh, just as, as good a football player as – as I've seen, honestly, I mean, I don't care what the position. This guy approaches every single down that it's the last play to win a Super Bowl. Every single snap this guy takes, he's one of those one of those guys that you just you feed off his energy and enthusiasm. I mean, he is so serious. He takes the fo- game of football so seriously that it's contagious. It's un- it's unbelievable to watch the guy perform. This was a really costly, painful loss. A chance to move into a tie with Baltimore. We don't know what's going to happen with Lamar Jackson, who is carted out today. You're down by 14 in the fourth quarter. You rallied a tie. You take the lead in overtime. You were in the locker room. How devastated was that room? It, it was. Uh, it was quiet, quiet in there, and, and guys were. Uh, you know, the the one of them he smiles. That's for darn sure. And and they just were very reflective, stunned. In a lot of cases, um, you know, it's like a in those situations. I've been in those situations, and, and it's almost like a bomb goes off, you know, and you just don't know exactly what happened, why it happened, how it happened, or anything like anything else. And uh, and I don't want to be that dramatic, particularly with what goes on in today's world. But I mean, it, it's it's just it's almost uh, it's it, it's almost beyond comprehension that that something like that unfolded the way it did, you know, particularly after you mount the comeback. You know, and, and you get back in two weeks in a row now. You know, they're down 24 nothing, score 22 to make it a game. And then never take a lead, though. And this one, though, they come back from down two scores in the fourth quarter, tie it, take the lead in overtime, and then don't finish it. So they're closer, but still, man, they just have to, they have to quit the self-destruction. I mean, these teams are good enough teams. We say it every week. These teams are all fighting for the playoffs. They're good enough to beat you. If you help them, you're done. You're You're cooked. Forget it. It's over. You can't help football teams beat you by stupid, silly mistakes, whether it's dumb penalties, turnovers, whatever the case may be. You just They're going to have to be eliminated. And think about it this way, too. In the last two weeks, they've had four turnovers that weren't forced. Two muffed punts today that led to 10 points. The Jamar Chase juggle that erased a 71-yard touchdown and became an interception last week. And Joe Mixon's fumble, where it wasn't really forced, he was just kind of doing a jump cut and lost control of the ball. I mean, it's bad enough to commit turnovers. It is 10 times worse when the other team doesn't even force it. Absolutely. I mean, that's just like saying, here you go. I don't want this football game. You know, uh, I I really, I I, I can compete with you, but I'm still going to let you win it. Here you go. I'll just give it to you. The only one that came close for them from a turnover standpoint was Jimmy Garoppolo dropping and think took a fortuitous bounce. But other than that, I mean, they, they played like a playoff team in terms of taking care of the football. The Bengals didn't, you know, and, and I'll guarantee you Darren Simmons is fit to be tied. I mean, he's probably pulling hair out by the roots as we speak. I mean, because I've heard him so many times say to return guys, the primary thing, the biggest thing I need out of you is an ability to track the football and catch the damn thing. 
Heard him today. In a game the Bengals uh, wind up losing by three points. They handed San Francisco four points. Was it four? Final margin four? No, three because there's no extra point. Yeah. So 26-23. But they gave San Francisco four points when Von Bell gets called for taunting. Absolutely. And and that one, you know, I, I understand the intent, but the pendulum has swung too far. Yeah. You know, and it's when you're when you're in a hotly contested game and the emotions are high, it, there's nothing wrong with a little celebration of a play that you made. I mean, it, it's it's not like you're in a guy's face and mocking him and it's just, you know, you the thing is though, you have to realize that if you're going to do this separate yourself from somebody and do a celebration. Don't walk up to him. When he walked up to an opponent and did it, he's done. He's done. He maybe had something to say, too. You can't do it. Use somebody else as a prop in your celebration. You can't include anybody else. If you want to just, you know, let it, let energy and, you know, emotion boil, do it alone. Go find a quiet spot to do it. Man, those things are killer. That was so costly. Unbelievable. All right, so we have been uh, going through the negative, and there's lots of it. But let's talk about the biggest positive. Joe Burrow is unbelievable. He estimated his velocity at 80 to 85% because of the injured finger today. 348 passing yards, two touchdowns, 161 yards in the fourth quarter alone. When they had to have it, the dude stepped up and delivered time and time again. The future's so bright with this guy at quarterback. And, and he sprayed the ball around. You know, that's the thing, too. He goes five times to Higgins for 114 yards. Every one of T. Higgins' catches were 19 yards or more. You know, all of them were. That's two weeks in a row that he's caught every ball he's caught is 15 yards or more, and today it's 19 yards or more every single catch. He averaged well over 20 yards a catch. Five catches by Higgins, five catches by Chase, four catches by Uzama, four catches by Tyler Boyd, four catches by Pirine. I mean, that's that's unbelievable distribution of the football. That's that's spraying it around to to all quadrants and being patient with what they're doing. And uh, he he is he's unbelievable. He he is such a competitive guy. And and with that said, uber competitive, but always unbelievably composed. He has the perfect balance. I mean, it's like that's a juggling act <laughs> to to be that competitive, but never lose. You know, never go over the top where you're hurting yourself because of your emotions. He has the perfect recipe, the perfect formula for success. It, it's, it's amazing to watch the guy. Nothing flusters the guy. Same stone face uh, <laughs> during the entire football game, pregame, postgame, in the press room, doing press conferences. He is amazing. No other word to describe it. As we chat postgame, we don't know the status of Trey Hendrickson. It obviously was scary when they brought out a cart just before halftime, and then he got up and walked to the sideline and walked to the locker room. So that was encouraging, but I'd be surprised if he was able to come back next week. Yeah, I mean, back injuries are tricky. I mean, I don't know where it is. You'd assume it's lower back, but you just don't know. Um, you know, I, I have, I've had an issue in my back that was between my shoulder blades one time. And that was about as problematic as, as anything because, you know, everything you're doing with your upper body and your shoulders and arms, you know, and, and then back injuries in general. I mean, when you're messing with your spine and your back and the muscles that surround it and everything, man, that's, that's no joke. And that's, that's nothing to, to mess with. So, yeah, to think that he would be able to come back, if it, it, unless it was just totally musculature and all it did was spasm and tighten up to the point where he couldn't move, 
and it relieved itself for some reason. I mean, if it were something like that, but if it's uh, if it's anything else with other soft tissue or other things around there, uh, you certainly have to be careful with back problems, that's for sure. So four games to go. The Broncos won by four touchdowns today. The Chiefs kick tail. The other games are within the division. They're going to have to win those games. The Bengals have gone from being in pretty good shape to now a difficult uphill climb to qualify for the postseason. There's no question. I mean, there's going to be so many games you look back on and you say, oh, if and but. You know, it's Christmas time. If and, but, <laughs> if and but were candy and nuts be Christmas every day. But all the teams can say that, you know. And uh, the thing, the thing oh, you got to be careful about Cleveland. Cleveland's got a, a winning record now, and they, they're the only ones that have a tiebreaker against the Bengals. They beat the Bengals and thrashed them. Here. Here. Bengals have to go up on the lake in the last game of the season, and if that's a game you got to win to qualify the playoffs or win the division to qualify the playoffs or where it may be, that's, that's not going to be an easy, easy dynamic whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, they're, they've, they've, they're, they've started to paint themselves in a corner. They're giving themselves no margin for error because of error that they've had uh, in, in trying to get to that final four games of the season. They're finally there, and uh, it's the final quarter as such, but it's not going to be easy on an every day, or every week basis. It is going to be <laughs> like you're playing a, a playoff game, and, and that's, that's the, how you have to approach it. That's the intensity level of it. That's what we saw last week. That's what we saw this week, and it's going to be the same. The last four games remaining, no different. For more on Sunday's win, join Lap and Lance McAllister for Bengals Line, Monday night from 6 to 9 on 700 WLW. Now time for this week's Fun Facts segment, where you are about to get to know a Bengals coach who turned out to be an exceptional storyteller. Time for some fun facts with offensive line coach Frank Pollock, born in Camp Springs, Maryland, near Washington, D.C., before attending high school in Phoenix, Arizona. Frank, where did you spend the bulk of your childhood, and, and what did you like to do as a kid? Uh, I grew up in Phoenix. I moved out there when I was two. My parents were in the Navy, and uh, when they met and got married and had me, and we moved out to Phoenix, so I grew up in Phoenix, 70s and 80s, and loved sports, loved football, right from the get-go and just did all the sports growing up as a kid like probably every other kid and just had a blast. I always assume and maybe it's stereotypical that the child of military parents has a very disciplined life as a kid. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I wouldn't say they were military parents because they got out like right after I was born within two years because then my younger sister was born in, in, the, in the same D.C. area and then we left. So I never really remember my dad ever being in the military. I was like two, so... Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was disciplined. My dad grew up in Cleveland and uh, went to Benedictine High School. And so kind of a, you know, Midwestern upbringing out there on the West Coast, you know, discipline was big in our house. And, you know, so he, he kept me in line if I ever got a little squirrely. <laughs> We're doing fun facts with Frank Pollock. You're a big man. You're a former NFL offensive lineman. Were you always the big kid in the neighborhood? No, actually, I was a late bloomer. Um, I was decent sized, young, but then by the time I got to high school, everyone was taller, bigger than me. Um, it's funny to see some of my uh, high school JV team pictures and some of my good buddies that they were all taller and bigger than me, and now I tower over them. So I was a late bloomer and grew a ton right before my senior year and then uh, obviously throughout college. 
When it came time for college, you became a lumberjack at Northern Arizona University, YNAU. It was the only scholarship offer I had outside of a couple of local junior colleges, so I, I took it and ran with it. <laughs> Northern Arizona has a remarkable record of sending coaches to the NFL. Who did you overlap with as a player and then as a young assistant coach? Yeah, I was very fortunate to be coached by some incredible coaches early on in, my, in, in college. My, uh, our, uh, my offensive line coach my, my sophomore, junior years was Bill Callahan. And then uh, before him, actually, for one year, my, really my, my true sophomore year, I had a late redshirt hardship there, but that was Andy Reid was my line coach before Coach Callahan came in. And then uh, the OC for most of those years, four out of the five, was Brad Childress. Mm-hmm. Um, Marty Morningwig was a young GA running back coach on that staff. Steve Hagan, who coached a long time in the league, tight ends and receivers, uh, was, our, was our receivers coach. Um, I was very fortunate, and then uh, they had a few good coaches came in after me uh, when I had left on a, on a different staff. And uh, actually, Brad Craigthorpe's uh, dad was on that staff. Uh, the younger Zampezi, uh, Ken Zampezi, was on that staff. Um, I'm drawing a blank. The head coach Carl Durrell at Colorado was on that staff. All these young guys that have gone on have great careers. So. Um, NAU's had a lot. Mike Shanahan coached there early in his career. Um, I'm drawing a blank now on the old New England O-line coach. Skarnekia, geez, he coached there early in his career. So it's kind of one of those unique, weird places. I always call it the cradle of coaches on the West Coast. I know Miami of Ohio's got that title mm-hmm. on the east of the Mississippi. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim it on the west of Mississippi. <laughs> Rightfully so. We're visiting with Frank Pollock. You mentioned Bill Callahan, who is the brother, or the dad, I should say, of offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. He was Zach Taylor's head coach at Nebraska. He is a big reason why you became a coach, correct? Yeah, he's he's uh, he's been huge impact on, on, on my life from a player and then in coaching. Uh, I remember writing him a letter when I was playing that I wanted to come in GA form at Wisconsin. And then, uh, and he wrote me back a nice letter saying that love to have you GA for me. In fact, I saved that letter, and years later, when I ended up coaching with him for him in Dallas as his assistant, I showed him that letter. He was flabbergasted that I still <laughs> kept it. So he's 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 been huge for me. Learned a ton, and still learning a ton from him. He's been been very fortunate in that regards. You earned a degree in advertising. If you didn't get into coaching, is that what you would have done? No. <laughs> It was the classic. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go down the the PE route. and wanted something a little bit different, so I just decided advertising didn't have a lot of math in it. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. But yeah, I kind of always knew I wanted to coach. I tried to stay away from it later in my life, and then got back into it. Cause that's where my passion is. After being named an All American in Northern Arizona, you were a sixth round draft pick by the Forty ers in nineteen ninety. Describe your draft experience. It was funny you ask. It was. A little different than how they do things now, but it was kind of a drawn-out process over three days. Um, and, in fact, it went like Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. It was kind of like the last day. So my agent at the time in Phoenix had a you know a big to-do party and whatnot during the first day of the draft, and he had a, a bunch of you know high first-round draft guys. I knew I clearly was not going to be taking that day, but just enjoyed the festivities. But I was under the impression that maybe the next day I might go, and, and then I didn't get uh, any information. And so I had to get up early on Monday morning, go to his office. He was located in Phoenix, and and I was just a, a, a wreck. I mean, we're, we're getting into the later rounds. The sixth round's gone. The seventh round's gone. This is back when we had 12 rounds. 
we're in like the ninth and tenth round. My agent's calling around teams. He calls the Washington Redskins and hits up Charlie Castro. I guess he showed interest in me pre-draft. And he goes, what do you mean? The Niners took him way back in the sixth round. Hmm. And he goes, what? They haven't even called him. And he tells me that. I go, I'm not believing it until I get a phone call. <laughs> so he calls the Niners, and they say, yeah, yeah, we, we're going to call him. We, were just, we just worked out a, a draft day trade, and we haven't had a chance to call him yet. So that's sums up in a nutshell. It's like, you know, he's some six-round O-line guy. We'll get back. We'll get to him whenever we can get to him. So that was kind of my draft experience. But nonetheless, it, I got my foot in the door. <laughs> that might be the greatest example of how the draft has changed that I have ever heard. <laughs> You were an NFL player for nine years, seven in San Fran, two in Denver. You won a Super Bowl ring with the 94 San Francisco 49ers when they beat the Chargers. What do you cherish the most about your experience as an NFL player? Uh, the great teammates, uh, the camaraderie with, with all my teammates. I tell the guys all the time, that's what you're going to miss, number one. Um, the, the, the great experiences and uh, that we had. We won a lot of football games, loved uh, my experience with all the different coaches that, I've, that came through the, the Niner years that I was there and in Denver, and then just just those great experiences and being a part of being able to you know play pro football is a, a dream come true and being able to be on such a a great uh, winning organization and getting a championship there with the Niners was was tremendous. Something I always uh, will relish. We're doing fun facts with Frank Pollock. The list of Hall of Fame players that were your teammates is remarkable. Yeah. I'm going to name a few. And I would like you to just share a memory or a description, whatever comes to mind. Okay. Joe Montana. Prankster. First thing that comes to mind, training camp, he'd take guys' bikes and throw them up into the trees. We had at Rockland Community, Sierra Community College in Rockland, California, because he didn't have to stay in late meetings. He knew the skiff system. So kind of an old veteran, they let him out of the meetings early. And you'd find it was on the campuses. Like a, he'd ride bikes through the meetings back to the dorms. And he would put guys' bikes in the trees. Great guy. Uh, love to go out with the full line, especially, and, and take them out, treat them out for, for some drinks and dinners, and it was a lot of fun. Great guy. Did he prank you? No, he never pranked me, but he did save me from getting just abused as a rookie from Charles Haley. But he, he was a guy that was constantly liked to pick on rookies. One day in, in the uh, locker room, we would sign these autographed footballs in front of the equipment room every day. It was part of our deal. And then uh, Charles Haley sees me over there, so he's just you know taking his ribbings, getting his opportunities at me as a rookie. And Joe, his locker is right there, and he said, "Hey, hey, Charles, leave him alone." And then uh, I was like, "Oh, this is a great guy." And then, so Charles ne- never messed with me again because Joe told him not to not to mess with me. I was like, "Okay, I'll take it." I have newfound respect for Joe Montana, John Elway. John Elway is another guy. Uh, loved hanging out with the old line. Um, good time guy. Loved loved. Loves to uh, hang out with the fellows. He was rehabbing his shoulder, uh, had an injury, and then I was on an IR with a back surgery that year. So at some point, doing rehab together, like they have you off to the side, he was going to start throwing some balls. So they asked if I would just go stand over there and he's going to throw these deep out routes to me. I just had to stand there. Oh, my God. My, I mean, he must have been like 30, 40 yards away. And the, the how hard he threw, my hands were hurting and red and hurt afterwards. Mm. I mean, I was just trying to protect my face from not getting this. I mean, it is ridiculous how hard that guy throws. That was like, like, wow, it's impressive. They talk about the Elway cross, the point on the end of the football where you've got the seams that come together and how he used to leave an indentation of that cross on guys' chests and stuff. That's legit because he zipped the ball in there, man. It was crazy. Jerry Rice. Unbelievable work ethic. Um, 
I share stuff like this with my guys all the time. This guy was so talented that you were never, ever going to outwork him. He was just maniacal over it, just relentless pre-practice, post-practice. Uh, it was it got, he, He's just an animal on how he would work out in his conditioning. His, his work ethic was unbelievable, unbelievable. Ronnie Lott. Ronnie Lott is one of my most favorite individuals. I got the utmost respect for that guy for, for how he was on the field and in the locker room. But him afterwards, years later, before I got on the coach, I got to do some business stuff with him and got to learn, uh, just get to know him a little bit better. Such a class act and just a, 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 a man, a man's man, a gentleman. He does a lot for the community with his All-Star Helping Kids charity. He, he is he, he's genuine. Um, he's, he taught me as an early player – Leadership from the locker room and chemistry matters more than anything on a football team. I played with him for two years, and when he left to the Raiders, we had a, a slow start the next year, and we had a team-only players meeting. And I'm a young guy. I'm just in there listening. And all the old guys, our leaderships then, got up, and every one of them, to a man, reference, where Ronnie would say this, mm. Ronnie would do that. He wasn't even on our team anymore. I'm like, hmm. When I coach someday, never forget that. Mm-hmm. So it's all about leadership. Got to come from the players and chemistry matters more than anything. Line one culture matters. Deion Sanders. He he was he came in with all the hype, right? Prime time. You're like, God, what's this guy gonna be like? You know. And then when he came in, he was just like one of the guys. That all that was just his persona off the field to get himself endorsements. He was just a regular guy, worked his butt off. His work ethic was right up there with the rest of the fellows and how we ran things there. And his his talent and speed were incredible. We had a, a, a pretty good player, Dexter Carter, was our kick returner, first-round draft pick out of Florida State, same year as me, fast. And he was good. And then Dion got there. Well, he's going to start returning kicks. And then you could literally see the difference of speed, and I'm like, oh, my God. That's when I ever realized how fast he was and some of these players in this league was where you could literally see the difference where Dexter Carter is not slow. He's fast. And you're like, holy cow, up close and seeing that. Um, and he would lay out his whole uniform, pregame ritual, his shoes, his socks, like it was like one of them chalk lines of a dead body, his pants, his bandanas, his sweet towels, all of it laid out. His wristbands on his elbows and, and wrists, whatever it was, his gloves, his, his helmet. That's how he would he would lay it out, and he would walk around the locker room and, and uh, dollar sign boxer shorts <laughs> to get his getting ready for a game. And, and it was kind of like where I learned also is like every player's got their own unique way to get themselves ready. They're all professionals. They just have their own, their own unique way to get themselves ready to play. And fantastic player. You don't do that with your clothes. No, I don't. I don't have the uh, the physique or skill set he has. I keep my I keep it clever up there. <laughs> All right, a couple of wild card categories to wrap things up. Who is your all time favorite athlete in any sport? Jeez, mm, that's a great question. I was a big cowboy fan growing up, so I loved Tony Dorsett, Roger Staubach. We didn't have any professional sports teams except the Suns. So at the time that the Suns, I was a big Walter Davis fan, and then I was a Dodgers fan. So Dusty Baker was my favorite player. Growing up in the seventies, uh, those are really the, the guys I idolized at the time. Growing up as a kid, do you have any hidden talents or off-field interests that might surprise us? My wife would definitely say I have no hidden talents whatsoever. <laughs> I'm worthless at home. I got I can't do anything. Um, so I would say probably not. 
except I, I do like to, to golf a little bit on my time off in the summer, but I'm horrible, but I love it. It's fun to get outside in a beautiful setting on a golf course and, and drink and eat while you play. It's always fun to do that. If you're horrible, but you love it, we'll play. We'd be a good match. Last thing, and this is kind of deep. If you could meet anybody in history, athlete, actor, statesman, politician, religious figure, whatever it might be, who would that person be? God, that's a great question. And I've always, I have pondered that. If I could go back in time, and I'd always want to go back in time to meet some of the legendary athletes and coaches. And then, so with my position right now, I'd have to say Vince Lombardi. Mm-hmm. And just pick his brain on on his approach to the game and practice, and just his experience and meet a guy like him. What he's done so much to the sport in person, but really anybody. Uh, I'm I'm a real big uh, sports historian. Uh, I, I love that stuff. So I'd love to meet any of those guys. I mean, Babe Ruth. Who would not want to go back in time and just just to be able to be around Babe Ruth? I mean, I mean he was heard he's pretty fun too to be around. <laughs> But uh, Vince Lombardi is the first guy that comes to mind. Just would love to uh, pick his brain on, on everything that he he done. And and I I can't I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Paul Brown, right? So he would he's incredible how much he's invented for this game. Um, and since since I come to the Bengals and learn a little bit more about him, already knew some of the stuff that he's done and created, invented. Uh, but he'd be another guy that'd be really cool. Uh, we have a. I guess Mr. Brown upstairs has got a lot of his artifacts and memorabilia upstairs. And uh, my first time I was here, I got to go check out some of that stuff. I know some of those things, some of his writings are up there. I'd love to go up there one of these days in the offseason and read some of his notes on plays and whatnot. This has been great. It's awesome to have you back on the Bengals coaching staff. Continued success, and thanks for the time. Thank you very much. It's awesome to be back. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play next-level fantasy football game. Download it now from the App Store and Google Play. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find us. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast. <laughs>